Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy, presented by Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Today, you're joining us for episode 14. I am thrilled to have our guest with us today because his practice has literally been a part of our boys' lives from the day they were born. I'll explain more of that in a moment. My why is to connect with people so that we may boldly contribute to an improved world. Primary care physicians, geriatric physicians, and pediatricians have a massive impact on contributing to an improved world. In particular, for my family, our pediatrician and her practice have been incredible partners for our family and helping to ensure our boys are healthy and well. For my wife and I, our boys are our world. So quite literally, Centennial Pediatrics is boldly contributing to improving our world. Today we have with us Dr. Zach Stone. Dr. Stone grew up in a small town of Lake Charles, Louisiana. He attended, is it Barb High School? Oh, it's Barb, yeah. Barb you, High School. My wife will make fun of me though and say Barbie. <laughs> Barb High School where he played multiple sports and enjoyed hanging out with friends. He graduated valedictorian and then attended Texas A&M University. Gig'em. Gig'em. At Texas A&M, he graduated summa cum laude with a degree in biomedical engineering, but more importantly, he met the lo his lovely wife, Jessica. He and Jessica married soon after graduation and after that moved to Houston, where Zach began his medical journey at Baylor College of Medicine. And Jess taught middle school math. After completion of medical school, Zach and Jess welcomed their first child, Holden, and moved to Dallas, where Zach would complete his residency training in pediatrics at Children's Health and UT Southwestern. During residency, they welcomed their second child, Madeline. Dr. Stone was awarded the White Hat Award at his residency graduation, which is given to one graduating resident per year. The White Hat Award winner is voted by their peers as the resident who would be most trusted in being their peer's child's pediatrician. That is inc an incredible shout out and uh, a real testament to who you, you must be as an individual and as a physician. Dr. Stone joined Centennial Pediatrics, which is where we uh, go as well. We love our pediatrician, Dr. Crow. We love you too, Dr. Stone, but we love Dr. Crow. Um, soon after graduating residency in 2022, Dr. Stone joined Centennial Pediatrics, where he currently serves as a pediatrician for children in the Prosper area. Zach and Jess just welcomed their third child, Skylar, and their very little free time that they have with three kids under five, Zach loves spending time with his family, playing golf, and reading classic novels as part of his book club that he's formed with his friends. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're never sitting around looking for things to do, <laughs> so I am grateful that you would share some of your time with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. We're happy that you're here. So it's the beginning of 2024. What's good? What are you looking forward to this year? You've got, I mean, you've got a lot going on. Yeah. So big things this year, our son will be starting elementary school with kindergarten. We're actually finishing up a house in Salina, just north of Prosper. And uh, that will be a fun transition for our family to move into a house that we actually own. We're renting right now and get established and put roots in the ground. Uh, so Holden will start elementary school. Madeline is just doing her thing, loving life. And then having 
Skyler now as a four month old getting into the groove of sleeping and everyone else is sleeping a little bit more now and her growing up. And then in professional life, it is very exciting at Centennial Pediatrics. We're welcoming a new pediatrician this summer. Actually, she'll be graduating from Children's Health as well, Dr. Grudzniak, and she is phenomenal. So we're growing as a practice. Uh, and then uh, as well as I just started a uh, department chair position at Texas Health Frisco Hospital. So leaning more into the hospital executive side is a very fascinating aspect to learn not only the medical part of being a physician, but also the managing and uh, executive side of it. And then personally, it'll be a fun year. We, uh, as you know, we're both Aggies. And so uh, as a sports watching fanatic, it'll be fun watching the expansion of the SEC and seeing uh, how our new coach does. So many different things happening uh, in my life, but uh, it's all exciting. And as you've alluded to, and as you know, with young kids as well, not a ton of free time, but everything that we're doing is very fun and rewarding. Yeah. As uh, our little ones were little, and even now, we sometimes my wife and I, we remind ourselves, the days are long, yep. the years are fast, you will get through this, you know this, you have medical training that, that supports <laughs> the fact that you will get through this. Sometimes you question that. <laughs> without doubt. Without doubt. Um, congratulations on also pursuing the administrative side of medicine. I think, I think it's a lot to ask people to be brilliant clinicians and brilliant business people. But I applaud when people, when physicians do that because there's a lot of people that make decisions in healthcare that don't have a clinical background. And I think it is incredibly important for physicians to have not just a seat to the table or access at the table, but they need to have a lead seat at the table when it comes to structuring and designing healthcare and how it works for all of us. So. I know it doesn't come easily, but I appreciate that you're pursuing that type of additional effort um, when you're already as busy as you are. Yeah. But I, we, we need that. Yeah, I agree. I, I Healthcare, and we'll get into this in a bit, but in the United States, there is a just a disconnect in between where we're going as a unit of healthcare and what physicians are seeing on the ground. And so I think the more we can get that disconnect out of the way and eliminate some of the communication between the ground level and the big decisions that are happening. I think that's better for not only patients, but physicians as well, staff, and just society in general. Yeah. That's a big goal. You know, again, healthcare ain't easy, yeah. but it it is worthy of our effort. It is worthy of our collaboration. Um, it's taxing on people like yourself to have to step up and also be an administrator and, and take that mindset as well. But it's necessary. We gotta have physician voices um, leading that that process. So you're now year plus into practice? It'll be two years this summer. Okay. That's right. Yeah, graduated June, my last shift. I'll never forget it. It was a night shift, June 23rd, 2022. And I started July 11th. 2022 at Centennial. So a couple weeks off. So okay. we two years this July. Two years this July. Yeah. How is practice what you thought it was going to be? It, Private practice? Yeah. It's, it. you know, I think everything in life, there is expectations of what you think and then reality. And so I don't think that is 
those never match completely, no matter what you do. But in That's terms, so true. <laughs> so true. My best friend and I like to have this conversation all the time. Of he's in the finance world and uh, works on used to work on Wall Street, uh, and I works in Miami. But we always talk about different positions and and jobs that people have, and it's like you see one thing and you have these expectations for something of what someone does or what that position does. And then you actually get into that role and it's about 5% of what you expect and 95% of what you don't see. I think that's true in life, not only in business, but I mean, my goodness, social media is a a perfect example of that. And so, you know, private practice, it is a very different world than what you're taught in medical school and in residency because most residencies or major academic institutions. And so those academic institutions are leaned upon by government agencies to provide care for underinsured populations, your Medicaid populations. And so for private practice, especially in the pediatric field and in Dallas, you go from caring for patients who come from a different socioeconomic background and training to private practice where you're dealing with multiple insurance companies, which are act and uh, behave very differently than Medicaid. And so I'd say it's very different than what I expected because I'm dealing much more with the logistics of insurance, but that has actually given me a passion for understanding those things and understanding logistics. I have a I, as you alluded to, an engineering background. So I love systems. I love understanding systems. I love creating efficient systems. And so in residency and medical training, you just learn the medicine, right? And then when you get out of that, when you get into private practice specifically, you learn how to actually care for the patient. What that means is not only providing the medical care, but also how do you navigate insurance? How do you make your patient's encounter with you as highly efficient as possible and lead them to the best the best overall outcome that you can get because it's not just as it's not as easy as in residency where you just order something in the hospital you order lab tests you order medications in the outpatient world you have to find out what's approved right you have to find out how do you get something approved that you feel like the patient needs you're alluding to prior authorization correct right which is Uh, I, I can see why prior authorization exists in some capacity. I also see it as a huge hurdle and burden put upon physicians yeah. to be able to provide and render the right care at the right time at the right price, um, which is that that's the aim. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, one of the focuses needs to be that, but when you've got to add these additional insurance layers that don't really focus on that patient and what they need right then and there. Yep. Absolutely not. It's, it's trying to create it's trying to create a perfect system in an imperfect world and it's just never going to happen and so it just it needs to be a little bit more simplified and i moving into our ai conversation we don't have to go there yet but i foresee probably the next 20 to 25 years a radical shift in how healthcare is delivered and I foresee a change in how insurance companies are the big middlemen in healthcare right now. And I think that role role is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller as you develop 
more machine learning capabilities in terms of what I think is the most fascinating aspect is how are physicians reimbursed? Because right now, physicians are reimbursed based on quality outcomes. Well, no one really can define what that actually is. And so they have all these algorithms to define, are you providing highest, higher quality care for your patient? And they reimburse you a certain rate. But a lot of those are just kind of numbers grasped out of straws. I think in the next 20, 25 years or so, there is going to be a huge shift in reimbursing physicians based on quality because we're moving away from a pay for service fee for model, service. a fee for service model to a quality model where you get reimbursed better. And that is going to, I think, if you if you really integrate machine learning, that can radically change how physicians are reimbursed. I think will shrink the insurance kind of middle ground and actually connect physicians more with their patients' quality care instead of just a, a model that doesn't fit every patient perfectly. <clears throat> Listen, I hope your prediction is spot on. I think that the challenge is going to be that these insurance companies are not going to necessarily, there's one of one of the big players, they have a half a trillion dollar market cap. That's not an organization that's going to come aboard and say, you know what, Dr. Stone, let's, let's do what you're doing. Yeah. Let's talk, let's, let's embrace Dr. Stone's ideas. There's going to be a lot of pushback, but I do want to get into more of this conversation, but I want to back up and ask yeah. of all the specialties, mm -hmm. all the different things that you learned, all the different rotations you, you had in medical school, why pediatrics? Why did you choose that that would be the place that you wanted to focus your, your time, your energy, your passion? That is a great question because if you would have asked me, you know, senior year of in college station, my fiance is soon to be wife. And we had these conversations about what kind of doctor I was going to be. And there was no way I would have chosen pediatrics at that time. There was just really? no chance. I, my wife makes fun of me now because when we were dating, you know, if we went on a, an airplane ride or anything and there was a crying baby, you know, it just drove, like, it was like, <laughs> fingernails on a chalkboard. I was like, why can't this parent get this baby under control? Like, what is going on here? And I was like, I don't want anything to do with that. Man, karma was listening. Oh yeah, it was. She was, was. going to have fun with you. That's right. And so as I went into medical school and as I went through my rotations, I started noticing these trends in healthcare. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with a, she was my surgical general surgery uh, clerkship director. And I was on the surgical oncology service for adults. And I just felt like a lot of what we were doing was palliative services. And there's nothing wrong with palliative services. But we're quickly, will you define palliative? Yeah, palliative in the sense of it will ease your comfort and pain, but it not it won't necessarily prolong quality life years for you. And so there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a great field, but it's nothing that I was particularly passionate about. What I was really interested in is what, how can we give or how can we increase the amount of high quality of life years in patients? And so to me, when I looked at pediatrics, I was like, man, if we could make a difference in care for patients when they're really, really young, we have a huge impact on the rest of their life versus, you know, doing one more end of life, risk, end of life surgery. I was like, right. to me, to me, that was not what I wanted to do. And yeah. like I said, those surgeons, those 
physicians are amazing and they do wonderful work for people, but just was not something that I was particularly passionate about. And so when I got into the children's hospital, one, it was what we just talked about, just being able to provide very early interventional care for patients to change the trajectory of their life. And two, they're just so innocent. And to care for a, a, a person who did nothing to get what they deserved, that to me was the most just rewarding aspect of medicine. And so an example is, you know, I have, I have a patient right now who is currently undergoing a couple of surgeries this week. And the mom called me and she was just, you know, asking, is this worth it? You know, is going under anesthesia twice really what we need to do for her child? And, you know, that's a different conversation than I believe it was, but her comment was, he's just so innocent. And I was like, he is, you know, that, that is what I think pediatricians and pediatric specialists, pediatric surgeons, I think that's what drives most people is you are caring for someone that did nothing to earn the disease process that they got. And so that is the most rewarding aspect. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I think <clears throat> pediatricians, I think uh, OBs, I think people that, that bring and nurture life from an early stage on, there's just a, I don't know, this is my opinion, they have a bigger heart. They have, uh, there's just, they wanna wrap their arms around people and hold them tight. And, yeah. and I'm grateful that you found that. <clears throat> okay, so you're a pediatrician now. Mm -hmm. um, as a pediatrician and a father of three kids under five, how many friends and family now call you no. for unofficial, <laughs> official <laughs> advice on, Timmy's little snotty is, yeah. is this, is this color green? Okay? <laughs> countless, countless. It's, it's a daily occurrence, which is totally fine by me for all my family members who are listening out there. It is, I, I love it. You know, it's, it's, again, it's, I think you and I are talking about on the phone, you know, back in the day, a lot of people want to be physicians because, you know, you, you see doctors as almost a, a a single pillar of society that you feel like you can, if you can get there, you feel like you have, you have influence, you have a pretty nice life, you get to do great things and all those things. Tremendous are, impact. Yeah. Tremendous impact. And all those things are true. That's changing a little bit. Right. And as you and I have talked about the, the quote unquote, nice life, it's still very nice, but with how healthcare is changing, you really have to have a passion for what you do, because if you don't, you're not going to make it in this world Yeah, because yeah, it's pretty great deal, but it is really difficult work. Because it, it's not all pros. There are yeah. lots of cons in healthcare. There's a lot of, you know, depending on different stats that are out there, medical school graduation's up. Yep. But the amount of people pursuing medicine, like they go to medical school, and I know people like this, went to medical school and decided this isn't worth it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have an MD, but decided... This system, I don't want to participate yeah. in that. I don't want to be a, a and and I can't blame them because of the way incentives are set up. Right, all of this incredible thing uh, that you've put yourself through, and this passion that you've identified in you, but but your victim, uh, well, you're not a victim, but mm -hmm. you are subjected to the rules of these other third party organizations that have their own incentives yeah. and their own agendas, and ultimately. You don't get to just bypass how they operate. 
right? And so that's really challenging. I want to ask about Centennial Pediatrics. Yeah. So North Texas is booming. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Plano. Frisco is where I used to go to do all the things I never wanted to get caught doing. <laughs> now it's Baby Town USA, yeah. right? Um, yeah. When we had our our boys that OB was introducing us to several places, and it was like there was a recruiting aspect of like you should come to have your child at our hospital because on your last night we'll have a steak and lobster dinner and you'll have a an award winning uh, chef make a award winning uh, I think it was chocolate cake yeah. for you. But for the record, it's pretty delicious. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but it's like other other hospitals were recruiting because Frisco was Baby Town USA. Right. In a community that size, to have that many hospital entities in one location is wild to me. But now you've got Frisco, you've got Prosper, you've got Salina. What's coming north is just incredible. So North Texas, you can go anywhere and, and have a thriving pediatric practice. Right. Why did you choose Centennial Pediatrics of all of them? Great question. So Centennial is one of the very, I say few practices left that is physician run. And so as you'll see in this area, a lot of the children's hospitals and big healthcare facilities are buying up other pediatricians offices. And for me, going almost back to my, uh, days of being an engineer, I love growing something myself organically. I love developing things. And so when I looked at Centennial, a few things popped out. One, it's physician run. So you, as a, as a, as a physician in the practice, you actually get say in what happens. It is an area, as you alluded to, that's massively growing. So it's opportunity to one, grow, and then not only grow my practice, but grow the whole practice. <clears throat> And two is the people, or three is the people. It's, uh, I was able to come on an interview and meet all the providers. And it was one of those places. And I'll, I'll, I told my residency director at the time that there are three times in my life where I walked away from something and said, that's exactly where I want to be. I said, I guess now four. One was when I went to AM. Two was when I walked out of Baylor College of Medicine for my residency or for my medical school interview. Three was my residency residency interview up here, and four was when I walked into that practice. And wow. so maybe I lean a little bit too much on gut feelings, but usually whenever I interview for something or I am applying for something, my my number one priority is when I walk out of that place, how do I feel? And it was the only practice where I felt like when I walked out, I was like, that's it. That's where I want to be. And mostly it's because of the people, where it was, and then the opportunity to grow. That's amazing. Well, I don't know all of your the partners and providers there. We adore Dr. Crow. We've had great interaction with other providers that have, when she's been out, uh, that have taken care of uh, the boys. In particular, I remember one time, one of the boys, we were walking down our stairs and he we're holding his hand and he didn't want to hold, mm. didn't want dad to hold his hand. And so, yeah. you know, yanked his hand and his elbow. Nurse made open. Nurse, nurse yeah. made. <laughs> so, and he was, I mean, it was unbelievable. The pain yeah. he was demonstrating to us. So we, we go there and I, and I forget the gentleman, the physician uh, mm. that took care of us, but yeah. he was holding Fraser's arm and, yeah. and talking to him. And then <laughs> just heard this pop. And, I was like, oh. and then immediately he just stopped. Instant relief. I mean, it was, Instant relief. it was amazing. Yeah. 
my favorite time I ever uh, was told how to treat one of those was I was in the ER. It was like midnight and residency and <laughs> one of my favorite ER, ER physicians, uh, Dr. Craig Wong, I'll never forget him. Uh, he said, you know how to fix this? He said, just walk up, shake their hand and go whoop, and just walk away. And it's true. That's really like if you can really master where you're feeling and you just grab their hand, you twist it, it is just instant relief. It's one of those diagnoses and pathophysiologies where you just feel good walking away because it was so painful. The intervention was so simple and then they walk away and they're just instantly better. Wow. That's amazing. Well, so that leads me to, uh, without giving any HIPAA protected information away, yeah. are there any, is there a story that comes to mind, you know, nearly a year and a half into practice now? Um, is there an experience that you've had that really reinforces for you why you chose pediatrics? hundred percent. I wrote this one down just for us to talk okay. about. And this, this to me, this story I think is going to highlight a lot about the philosophy of healthcare, of how I think about it, and I think how it should change a little bit. So there was a 12-day-old infant who came in and it was just coming in for their typical two-week check, their two-week well-child check. Comes in and uh, one of my uh, mentors in residency, Dr. Al Karam, so a well-known pediatrician here in Dallas, he always taught me to do my own vital signs. He said, when you walk in the room, always take the heart rate yourself and the respiratory rate yourself. And so that's just something that carried over with me. And so I always do that. And I'm just examining the kid and I noticed his heart rate is like 220. I was like, huh, that's a little quick. And so I was like, well, I wonder like maybe he just was upset and I just walked in the room and maybe he was, you know, wiggling around. I'll just give him some time to calm down. So I give him over to his mom and we wait about, you know, three or four minutes. Now listen again. I was like, huh, it's 210. Like, that's not slowing down that much. I was like, you know, one more time. Let's just see if we can get him to calm down and slow down and, and go from there. And so I give him a few more minutes. Now let's sing again. It's back up to 220. I was like, well, you are an SVT, supraventricular tachycardia. And so what that is, is you can have these uh, reentry circuits in your heart where the mechanisms to, to slow pace it, to tell it to not go too fast is, is hardwired around. And it presents with... It can present with a kid who is just inconsolable. It can present with, if you let it go too long, eventual heart failure, heart failure. Or it can present where you just listen and his heart rate is fast. And so I was like, well, the kid looks great. You are in what I call stable SVT. So you need to go to the ER and get essentially converted and then get plugged in with cardiology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So time goes on. Kid ends up getting admitted to the cardiac ICU and started on a couple of uh, anti-arrhythmic medications and get discharged. He's doing great. And now he hasn't had any more recurrences and just flying with cardiology and will eventually outgrow his medication and they'll go from there. And so why I bring that story up for a couple of reasons, go back to early intervention, early prevention. I looked at the cost of a heart failure, heart transplant cost, financial costs. Average is $1.4 million. If you look at his hospital stay, it was probably like $50,000 or so, somewhere in that range. And I'm not bringing this story up to say, oh, look how great I am. I saved this kid's life. I bring this story up to say, look how much money there is to save in healthcare with early aggressive intervention, mm -hmm. early aggressive preventive practices. That's just one aspect of medicine where if you pursue 
prevention hard enough, and if you are really dedicated to catching things early, that's what it can save. Not only a kid's life, which is the most important part, right? But we talk about how expensive healthcare is. And I, I believe that we are focusing too much on the cutting edge, which is great. I'm an engineer, right? I love cutting edge technology. I love the next greatest, best thing, right? That is treating patients at the end. But on the flip side of that, one of the most important aspects of engineering I learned, it is way more efficient and way cheaper to prevent problems than it is to fix one. And so that just encompasses why I love pediatrics so much and why I love preventive pediatrics so much. Yeah. I'm thrilled to hear that the child is, is doing well. I'm thrilled that you're the pediatrician for that family. And also, we don't, I don't want to make assumptions, but <clears throat> we don't know what that family's insurance situation is, what their financial situation is. What we do know is this, the number one cause for bankruptcy in this country are medical bills. And when it comes to our kiddos, there's nothing that's off the table, right? right? So if this kid did need something significant, that family's going to say, okay, whatever it takes, right. protect my child, mm -hmm. save my child, yep. take care of my child. We'll deal with the financial repercussions. But in this country, I do not believe that people should go bankrupt to be able to live, right. to be able to contribute to society and, and add value to the lives of the people they love in their communities. And to care for your child. That's, that's just, just, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about my time with Centennial Pediatrics. The boys have been sick. We'll bring them to the waiting room. Well, I'm only in the waiting room because they got sick that day. And all the other people in the waiting room, all of their kids got sick that day. And I think to myself, is this really where we should be sitting right now? Yeah. Where my kid is sneezing, that kid is sneezing. We're all coughing all over each other. I'm like, I can't get sick because I need to get on a plane in three hours right. and uh, et cetera. You know, life goes on. Yeah. <clears throat> What's your perspective on parents using virtual care <clears throat> for, for sick kids? Yeah. It. It's an interesting conversation. And the reason that is, is because I'm not entirely sure there's a right answer. There's almost like everything in medicine, likely a happy medium. Because if you take people who say, well, that should never substitute for a physician evaluation in person, you're right. You're absolutely right. But I would counter that with saying, well, we've also taken call over the phone for decades and tell people whether you should come in or not. So I don't see why that is that different, right? Except you're charging probably a little bit more for the telehealth visit. And then there is the other side of saying, well, you can almost treat everything with telehealth visit. And I would, I think most physicians would argue, well, that's very, very incorrect. And because there's just too many nuances in medicine. And as we've talked about before, seeing your own physician that is, especially if you're a parent, to see your own child's physician over and over again, that you just leave the office feeling better. Absolutely. Right? And so I think there is a space for telehealth. I think there can be value in decreasing waiting room times and almost like a triage service. But I've run into times where they're just given antibiotics 
for a quote unquote ear infection. I was like, there's no way you could really tell. <laughs> or they'll, they'll prescribe me a box for strep without a test. I was like, there's, there's just no way you, you can be able to, to actually tell over a video with precision of if a kid, if a kid truly has strep or, I mean, maybe an ear infection or they have the new fancy like virtual otoscopes, but still it just, there's a happy medium. What I think is likely the best space for it is some type of triage service of, do you really need to come in or not? How do you look? Because what we're taught in medical school and a residency, the first thing that you, or one of the most, one of the more important aspects of a physical exam is how does the kid look when you walk in the room? And you can accomplish that with health, sure. right? You can say, oh, that kid looks really sick. Yeah. <laughs> they should get to an ER. Or that kid is running around the room, like eating a popsicle. Like, right. So like, because I've had kids that come in, I'm like, why'd you become, like my mom, I'm asking that because you just look so good. Right. And so I think that's probably the best space for it, not for diagnosing and, and treating necessarily exclusively, maybe in certain circumstances, but really giving parents advice. Well, where do you really need to be seen right now? Do you have time to wait? Or do you need to go to your pediatrician's office? Or do you need to go to urgent care? Or do you need to go to the ER? That can be accomplished with telehealth. I'm not sure it's the highest quality care to see a, a physician that's not your own over telehealth to make diagnosis and management decisions that, especially for chronic conditions, but also that need a little bit more nuanced visualization. 100% agree with you there. You know that we're biased at Sniffle. We, we believe that continuity of care, relationship of medicine between patient and physician is really important. Provider-patient relationship is sacred. It should be protected. It is very critical to ongoing health journeys to be positive. Right. Um, so we're in alignment there. Random doctors treating random patients mm -hmm. is not good for patients or providers, yeah. really. But what we look at is using tech to be able to f fill in some of the gaps. Mm -hmm. So one of the things like, for example, the kid that you uh, sent to the hospital mm -hmm. over a telehealth visit, how are you going to be able to know that it was 220, then 210, then 220? You're going to rely on a, a mom to do that. A mom's too close to it, right? right. A, a dad's too close to it. Mm -hmm. But there are tools, right? There's this incredible uh, device. I think it's made by a company called Nonagon. Mm -hmm. It does nine different tests. It's got a pulse oximeter, an otoscope, a laryscope. Yeah. And if you can then feed that data into a smart app, like a sniffle, yeah. and then you have a machine learning protocol, like our iagnosis tool yeah. built on 14 million patient visits, yeah. then it's not just randomly guessing, it's, it's going through a branching logic and generative AI process that's really helping to, again, not cut out the position, yeah. but then to say, here's a set of differentials. Dr. Stone, what do you think we should do? Well, based on how the child looks, based on the data that I'm getting from his temperature and his pulse and all these things, I think I may validate this uh, assessment. Yeah. And let's let's call in a script and let you know call me after in two days. Sure. Or you're going to say, I don't like any of this. This doesn't look right to me. I'm your pediatrician. I need you to bring Timmy in right now. Yeah. Right? get Susan in here so that I can take care of your child. Right. But the physician should be the one to make that call. One of the things we talked about, staffing is a huge challenge, right? And even in a place like Frisco and Centennial Pediatrics is, is an independent physician 
practice that's growing and, and thriving, it's still hard to find great talent to join because there's openings everywhere. Right. So how do you help people do more with less? Our perspective is you you lean on tech. You allow tech to do a lot of the mundane and not just, you know, intake. Some of the intake process can be mundane. Some of the intake process can really be accelerated with AI. And that's what we've really incorporated. I think we've done a, again, try not to drink my own Kool-Aid, but I think that we've done a pretty exceptional job at digitizing the whole intake process and allowing physician and patients to be able to have more confidence uh, in what's going on, but also to spend more time with each other as opposed through all to doing all the administrative burdens that are put upon you as a physician. Right. Yeah. Um, so what, what are your thoughts specifically on AI and pediatrics? Do you see an area where AI and peds can come together? Absolutely. That I would argue that pediatrics is a very special niche for AI. And the reason that is, is because pediatrics, yes, is medicine, but it's also one of the very few specialties that incorporates, and you need to know also parenting, right? And so it, the, there are aspects of advice in pediatrics that can be handled by machine learning capabilities without question. And then for the medicine aspect, I think there's massive opportunities. And the reason why is somewhat what you alluded to is this pediatrics itself, general pediatrics itself, most kids are going to be just fine, right? It's not, you're not dealing with trauma cases that are coming in every day that, you know, without intervention, you're going to have a high rate of morbidity, morbidity mortality. Most kids are going to do clinically well. And why that's nice is, as you said, if you had technology that could recommend an intervention and say, hey, you're not getting better in a day or two, call me back. That is appropriate for most pediatric cases. Now, you'll find the occasional general pediatric case that needs to be seen immediately, Sure, right? However, a lot of pediatric cases are one, either not not the severity itself is not high in terms of ranking it in medical problems and they're usually acute right they're usually short-lived and so what we try to do for our practice too we have, we have a triage service that says hey you should be okay to give it a few days and i think ai by all means can do that and so i think it has that aspect of it in terms of recommending over-the-counter, you know, therapies or monitoring observation. I liked your point about, you know, having an algorithm that could take in all this data and if physicians are comfortable writing a script and saying, hey, if you're not getting better in a day or two, come on back. And I think that is appropriate, like I said, for most cases. And the AI in general, machine learning in general, has so many opportunities in other areas besides just the medicine, as you said, you know, waiting rooms are full all the time, right? Of sick of kids. sick kids. Is there a better way to schedule? Right. Is there a better way to is there are there higher degrees of efficiency 
for logistics in operating a pediatrics practice. We've talked about a project that I worked on at Centennial. And the, the paperwork is another great one because that, I can't tell you how much time is spent sometimes just with administrative duties. And I, it's pediatrics specifically, I think just has the highest opportunity for artificial intelligence because if, if you look at medicine itself, most of the severity is on the lower side. And so you give the machine the opportunity to try. And if it doesn't get it right, that's okay. We'll see the kid in a day or two or same day if we need to. Yeah, I, I think that allowing pediatricians to do more with less mm -hmm. is important. We need to find a way to do that. If we can help parents understand how to do more with less, there are times where I don't need to bring my kid in. I don't need to, there are unintended consequences across the board mm -hmm. by also uh, over utilizing care when it's not needed. Right. Um, kids get sick, They're, you know, he's snotty. That doesn't necessarily need this. So maybe I don't need to cancel my trip and then the, the ripple effects that take place from all of those other things. Um, are you using AI in your personal life? And if so, how do you use AI? And what, you know, what does that look like for you? Yeah. That's a great question. Ever since ChatGPT came out, yeah. that opened my eyes. I mean, a lot of this technology has been evolving for years, right? I think ChatGPT really bursted onto the scene. And Absolutely. now every, the, all the hot topic is AI, AI, AI. And really that's a very generic term, right? AI. And so a few different things that I like to use it for one, I've done it for a couple, or I guess one project now for their practice, going back to the staffing issues, trying to accurately predict how busy we're going to be each day. Because as we talked about, most pediatric cases are very acute, right? They just wake up one day and they're sick and they want to get seen. That's totally appropriate. But we don't know how busy we're going to be. And so that I thought was a good opportunity to give data to a machine learning software and see if it could accurately predict how busy we're gonna be. So I took 12 years worth of data across seven physicians and I fed all that data into a, a data robot. And each uh, data point was a specific date and time with how many sick visits each doctor saw that day or were prescribed that doctor because nurse practitioners can also see sure. physicians, kids. And so I was like, go at it, data robot. Let me see what you can do. And that data, sick visits and pediatrics, it, the entropy is so high <laughs> because one, you have human behavior, which is probably one of the highest entropy data sets there is. And then two, the seasonality of everything, of viruses, sure. of stomach, of injuries, random injuries. <clears throat> what it gave me as the output was far more impressive than I could have ever imagined. It was nearly a week out predicting at least every every day that it predicted was, was something you could act upon. And some days it was spot on. And these numbers range from you know, five to 50. And it was pretty dang close nearly every day. And so that is a, I think, an opportunity for growth for AI and healthcare 
predicting how busy are you going to be? How much staff do you need? Zach, that is really fascinating and really cool because now as an independent practice, you all have to be the stewards of your financial decisions too. So it's not like, you know, children's is going to backstop of whatever it's, we need to, so if we want to go plant a new practice in Salina, we need to base this on some data, right? All the demographic studies, but then also if we could use machine learning, like the way you are yeah. to be able to say, not only does it make sense to double the square footage of that off that practice on that office, that clinic in Salina, we can predict that this, these are the types of visits, the number of visits we're going to have. Yeah. So we're going to need double the exam rooms. Yeah. And we need to staff up three times as much. I mean, right. data-driven decisions mm -hmm. always lead to better results. 100%. And so I think that's incredible. And yeah. kudos to you for taking the time to, to learn this process. But then also, again, your practice is benefiting. Your patients are benefiting. Yeah. The kids are benefiting because you're using this machine learning. Because now, if you know we need to be staffed up for 50 patients today, that 50th kid who comes in, you don't know if that's the kid that the one you described earlier that had the 220 heartbeat that needed to get to the ER yeah. versus we don't have any appointments today. I don't have staff to, to get your kid in today. Why don't we come back tomorrow? Like you said, most kids are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. But every now and then we don't know. Yeah. And so doing these little things up front allow big ripples to take place down the line, which I... I Incredible. I'm really excited to hear more about how that continues to evolve for you. Um, where can people find you and learn more about you and Centennial Pediatrics? Yep. So we have a couple locations. Uh, we have one in Frisco off Independence Parkway where you see Dr. Crow with your boys. And then we opened a Prosper location just a couple years before I started. So I specifically practice in the Prosper location. Uh, it is just off 380 in Legacy. And so we have a little office right around the neighborhood there. And so I work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and uh, some Saturdays at our Frisco location. But yeah, we, and the nice part about our practice is, and which is different than I'd say most pediatric practices, is you can get same-day sick appointments because that is not the case in your bigger healthcare facilities. And yeah. you're definitely not going to see your own doctor then. I can testify to this. Um, we've used it. We've experienced it. It is a huge thing for our family to be able to know that we can lean on our consistent relationship and continuity of care with Dr. Crow. When we need her, she's there for the voice. And that's amazing. Yeah. So we like to think it is definitely a philosophy in our practice that if a kid is sick, they need to get seen the same day. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense because I've heard of other practices around the area where you call in for a sick visit and they're like, oh yeah, we can see you in a day or two. I was like, for a pediatrics, that doesn't really work. You know? <laughs> it's going to, it can change so quickly. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, we, we stay open really as long as we need to, uh, our phones turn off at five, but we stay there till seven, uh, sometimes past that. And, uh, most times you're going to see your own physician. Uh, and occasionally if we're busy, if we don't have the right time appointments for that pediatrician, you may see a nurse practitioner um, who we have excellent nurse practitioners as well. Uh, but we take a lot of pride in, in what we deliver as a product to the community that we are going to give you continuity of care. And as private practices diminish in volume because they 
are a part of larger healthcare organizations, that quality is going to shrink and shrink and shrink. Well, um, I'm grateful to you and to Centennial Pediatrics for all that you do for all the kiddos in our community. Final question, Chris Shembra, uh, Wall Street Journal bestselling author, several books. He asked a question that I like to share with other people, and that is, if you could give credit or thanks to one person, could be more than one person mm -hmm. if you'd like, but in your life that you don't give enough thanks or credit to, who would that be for you? It's a great question. I thought about this for a while. I, you know, thankfully you let me know that this question was coming beforehand, so I had some time to think about it. And one, I'm always going to give the most credit to my wife, right? My parents, my sister, those people have been with me for so long and gone with me through the ups and downs and supported me in ways that I could sometimes at the time didn't even appreciate. And I'll always give thanks and credit to them. But I wanted to take a slightly different spin on my answer because these are people that I felt like I've never really thanked. I've always loved, I've always appreciated it, but I've never thought about how thankful I am. One, personally, of course, when you hear the answer, you're gonna say, of course, you're thankful for them. But two, from a professional standpoint, my children have taught me so much. Going back to what we talked about, being a pediatrician is part physician and part parent. The amount of advice that I can give to other parents, a lot of that comes from being a parent, not a, not a pediatrician. And so one, I'm thankful for them because they're my kids, right? But two, man, what I've learned from them. And they're just amazing individuals. And I just look at them, I was like, man, I wish I could be like you. you know, like, <laughs> I love your spirit. I love how you view the world. And obviously I love them very dearly, but. I wanted to give a special shout out to them. That's tremendous. Um, it is amazing. Our kids can help us reframe uh, pressures and challenges of the world. And you mentioned the word innocence and love. You know, they love first. They 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 always choose to love first. And as we get older, sometimes we can put up walls and and forget that. And I we try to practice that in our home. Always be kind, always be respectful, love everyone you can, yeah. as much as you can. So um, this is fantastic. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing time with us. This is Healthcare Ain't Easy. Uh, Dr. Stone and the, the pediatricians and the advanced practitioners at Centennial Pediatrics do an incredible, incredible job in caring for kiddos across North Texas. I'm grateful for brilliant pediatricians that have that passion and that purpose I uh, hope this was a great episode for you. It certainly was for me. Dr. Stone, thanks for being here. Thank you. Catch us next time on Healthcare Ain't Easy. Talk to you soon.